let me just remind you of what we have covered so far. We noticed, uh, first of all, that the Holy Spirit figures quite frequently in the Old Testament, but very, very rarely is he called the Holy Spirit. And he is not called a he either. So in other words, the Hebrew word ruach stands for spirit, but it also stands for breath and for wind. And it usually has this connotation of a turbulent or a mighty or a moving force. Now, of course, the Hebrews believed that God's mighty power was in evidence in many, many different ways and forms in the world, and they attributed that to what they called the Spirit of God. When we get into the New Testament, we see a marked development in understanding on the Holy Spirit. And the two particularly important things, I think, that we learn are, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is not just a force, he is a person, and that we are to think of him as a person. And whilst there were in the later writings in the Hebrew Scriptures indications of a growing sense that the Spirit of God, being the Spirit of God, who is a holy God, was therefore a holy spirit, there was a growing sense that he was not only a person, but he was divine. This, of course, becomes much clearer in the New Testament. And so we have been seeing the development of understanding as far as the Holy Spirit was concerned. We have concluded that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. He is divine. He is a person. We have seen that he has the attributes of personhood. We have seen that he has the attributes of deity. We have seen that he relates to the Father and to the Son, that there are many, many activities in which they are jointly engaged. And this is the information that we put together to conclude that we worship a God who exists in three persons and yet is one God. <laughs> what, I, what I personally believe is the ultimate mystery, the ultimate mystery. And it's very, very interesting that when we look at the groups that have developed that are what Orthodox Christians would call sects, it is usually in the area of the Holy Trinity that the differences arise. And I would say practically no day goes by without I have either an email or a letter or a phone call from people who are struggling with this whole idea of the Holy Spirit. And so it is good for us to be spending some time looking at the biblical evidence as to why we do believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, we started to look at the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and today I want to talk to you particularly about the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. We, we will look first of all in Luke chapter 1. The Holy Spirit 
in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Well, actually, let me back up just a little bit. This is the story of Zechariah, who is a priest on duty in the temple in Jerusalem. That in in and of itself doesn't sound very significant until we realize that the priests were not always there, not always on duty. In fact, we estimate there were as many as 18,000 priests who were involved in the ministry of the temple in Jerusalem. And clearly not all of them were there at any one time. They were divided into sections and various sections would be on duty. Sometimes when their section was on duty, a priest would be selected from all the members of the section for special activities. And this was Zechariah's big day. It's quite possible that this would be the only time that a priest would be given these special duties. And it was whilst he was engaging in these special duties that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. I'm reading from verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now, it's quite possible that at that particular juncture, Zechariah thought to himself, uh, which prayer? Which prayer? But he soon found out, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. There we are. Now we have a mention immediately in the Luke chapter 1 of the Holy Spirit. What we read now, of course, is that this unborn child will from birth be filled with the Holy Spirit. This must have been incredibly exciting news to old Zechariah. Not only exciting news that his wife was actually going to have a child after they had given up. He probably couldn't even remember the last time they prayed about this. It was so long. But the exciting news that the Holy Spirit was going to be in evidence. Now remember this, that we have a period of four or five centuries in between the the ending of the story of the Old Testament and the beginning of the story of the New Testament. It's what we call the intertestamental period. And we know very, very little about that period. But we do know that there had been a marked absence of a prophetic word. Now, as we saw from our study in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit came upon people, the obvious evidence of it, more often than not, appeared to be that the people would prophesy. And so when we hear that there had been a lack of a prophetic message for four or five centuries, 
it's a reasonable assumption that there had been a lack of evidence of the Spirit of God at work in the people of God. The people of God were at a very, very low ebb indeed. You will remember that in the famous vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and he couldn't remember what it was, but he wanted it interpreted. And so he called in his expert interpreters, and they weren't quite expert enough to know what the dream was without being told, and therefore they were having extreme difficulty interpreting it. But fortunately, Daniel had gained something of a reputation as having ability in this area. So Daniel, who was a captive, you remember, he was brought before the king, and he had the ability to tell the king what his forgotten dream was and then to interpret it. And you remember what the dream was. It was of a mighty statue, the head of which was gold, the shoulders of which were silver, the trunk of which was bronze, the leg of which were iron. And he said that this spoke of four great empires. The golden head was King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that certainly pleased old Nebuchadnezzar. That was the Babylonian Empire. But that would give way to an inferior empire. And that, of course, would be the Silver Empire, and that would be of the Medo-Persians. But that would give way to another empire, and that would be the empire of Alexander the Great, or the Greeks. And during the reign of Alexander the Great, or during the period of the Greek ascendancy, more accurately, there would be a very, very violent rebellion under the Maccabees in Israel, which was something that, well, it it is something that the, the Jewish people still celebrate to this day. And then finally, there would be the empire with the legs of iron, and that would be the Roman Empire. In this intervening period, where there had been no prophetic word, where there had been a lack of evidence of the Spirit of God at work, these four empires had ruled and reigned. There had been mighty conflicts in the whole region on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Little Israel, right in the middle of it, it's always been a hot spot. Don't be surprised, it's a hot spot today. And it always seems to be in the very, very middle of the cauldron of the nations fighting each other. The Babylonians were long gone. The Medes and Persians, they're long gone. The Greeks are long gone. They've come and they've gone, which is what empires do tend to do, including the British one. And then, of course, the Romans were in the ascendancy at the time that we're speaking about. But they too would go. They too would go. And of course, the end of the story was that a little stone would come rolling towards this great statue and would hit it. And as it hit it, it would absolutely destroy and grind to dust. And the stone would grow and grow and grow. And this, of course, was the picture of the kingdom of God. Now, this was the hope 
that the people of Israel had maintained for 400 years of prophetic silence. This was the hope that they were longing for. And now there is evidence that the angel of the Lord is speaking to old Zechariah and he is actually saying not only that they are going to have a remarkable birth in their family, but this child will be a special child upon whom the Spirit of God will be working in a special way. This was exciting news for old Zechariah at this particular time. So, the situation is the days of prophetic silence are apparently over. The absence of the spirit of manifestations are hopefully ended, that this child to be born will be filled with the spirit. Now, notice this expression, filled with the spirit, is not an Old Testament expression. Here we have a hint of a new era about to dawn. In the Old Testament, we used to read about the Holy Spirit would come upon people. We remember that the Holy Spirit would come upon people as an evidence of their calling and as a symbol of their empowering and anointing. Now, this is not talking in the same, quite the same language. There is going to be a filling of this child with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to see that Luke uses this term three times in, in what we call the, the birth narratives. We don't, well, if, if you want a reference to them, it's in, in this chapter, Luke, uh, verse 41 and verse 67, as well as verse 15. So now we've got to mention of the Holy Spirit in a new way. Second thing I want you to notice is in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. We read this familiar story. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, our problem reading that is we have heard it so often. You can probably almost recite it verbatim. Try to imagine what this young girl is thinking. Girls in Israel at that particular time would be betrothed to somebody when they were 12 or 13 years of age. 12 or 13 years of age. At that particular time, they were actually regarded as man and wife, although they were, they were not living together, they were not engaging in sexual union at that time, but they were promised to each other. It was at that particular time, before they had actually come together, before they had finalized the betrothal, 
that the angel appeared to Mary. And they were betrothed at the age of 12 or 13, and the marriage usually took place within one year after that. Mary, at this stage, was probably no more than 13 or 14. And so the angel of the Lord speaks to her, and what he says to her is absolutely mind-boggling. This child will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. Remember, Most High was a Hebrew expression for the Almighty God, whose name they were afraid to profane, so they never used it. And so they called him a number of things, including Most High. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be given the throne of his father, David. We don't know how much Mary knew about the Old Testament scriptures, but if you'd asked anybody who was knowledgeable in the scriptures, they'd have known exactly what that was all about. But he goes on to say, he will reign over the house of Jacob, listen, forever, and his kingdom will never end. And understandably, Mary says, how can this be? But notice that she asks a very, very female question. She doesn't ask a very theological question, Please don't infer from that that I mean women don't ask theological questions. They do. But she asks a very, very female question. She says, how is this going to be? But she's not thinking about the throne of David, and she's not thinking about the house of Jacob, and she's not thinking about forever. She says, I'm a virgin. I'm a virgin. How is this going to be? And just listen to the answer. In the context of our study, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. What a remarkable statement this was. Now remember the long years of silence. Remember the lack of activity of the Spirit of God being manifested, etc., etc. And now this little girl has an angelic visitation and she is told something of this magnitude. And what is she told? She is told that the Holy Spirit in some way The Holy Spirit, in some way, is going to be operative in her body so that through the action of the Holy Spirit, the eternal word will be enabled to assume our humanity and be born as a baby. Now, the Jewish people understood the idea of the Ruach of God as being power. They understood the Ruach of God as being creative power. They understood the Ruach of God as being divinely creative power. But this idea of the Spirit of God being the agent whereby in some amazing, amazing way, From God would be born one who was a holy one, an utterly set-apart one within her body. That was totally 
beyond her comprehension and mine and yours. If we get to begin to understand the Holy Spirit, not just experience the Holy Spirit, if we, if we to begin to try to understand the Holy Spirit, we, we have to begin to try to get a picture of what the Scriptures say about him and his capabilities and what it is that he does in people's lives. This is the power of God at work. You remember that Jesus said of the Father, a body you have prepared for me. You, Father, have prepared a body for me. Jesus himself said that he was going to offer up his body as a sacrifice for sin. But when we think in terms of this body that is going to become a sacrifice for sin that the Father has made, if we're tempted to ask the question, but how is this going to be? The answer is the agent of God's activity in creating the means whereby the, the word of God, the eternal word of God becomes incarnate, the agent is the Holy Spirit. That's who we're talking about. This is the Holy Spirit of Scripture. At the same time, Joseph was understandably upset about all this. Presumably, little Mary had come to him and she tried to explain at some stage, perhaps she kept quiet for a few months until she couldn't keep quiet any longer. And now the rumors are starting and so she comes and talks to Joseph and she says, I'm pregnant. He was a decent kind of fellow, this Joseph. Now, he was well within his rights for him to annul the betrothal, but he didn't want this to be a matter of a huge scandal and public disgrace. So he's trying to figure out ways in which he can do it decently and honorably without shaming her any more than she's already shamed herself in his eyes. And at that point, the angel of the Lord appears to him. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. After he had considered this, that is all that I've just suggested to you, all the stuff that's going through his mind. After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So, this is the beginning of the relationship of the Holy Spirit and the incarnate Jesus. Let's go on to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. After the allotted time, the child is born. And after the allotted time, after the child is born, he is presented to the temple on the eighth day. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. We won't read all the details. But in the temple at that particular time, 
was a man called Simeon. Simeon doesn't get a lot of press, but he is a delight. He is a wonderful old boy. You should study Simeon sometime. Verse 25, Luke chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Do you remember the prophet Isaiah? And one of the wonderful prophetic utterances he made concerning the coming servant started with these words, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Remember? Hello? Oh, you remember? Good. I'm sorry. I wasn't sure if you'd left. Um, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. What's another word for comfort? To console. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. What are you waiting for? He is waiting for the one whom Isaiah has prophesied will come, who will bring hope, who will bring peace, who will bring blessing to Israel. Years and years and years and centuries and centuries had gone by, but the eschatological hope, if you want to use that term, the eschatological hope was alive and well in the heart of this old, godly, devout man. There were bad days in Israel, but God always has his people, however bad the days are. He'll always have a faithful remnant. He will always have those who honor him. There will always be those who are convinced that God will keep his promises and he will work out his purposes. And so Simeon is a special man. Now read on in verse 25. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. All right. So the Holy Spirit is really gearing up now. The Holy Spirit is coming upon Mary. The Holy Spirit, we didn't read it, but he comes upon Elizabeth. Now the Holy Spirit comes upon Simeon. And as the Holy Spirit is upon him, the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this man, the devout man, the righteous man, the man upon whom the Holy Spirit was clearly resting was a man who was sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit. You know why we we know that? Because it goes on to say, verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Nunc Dimittis. All right? Remember your Nunc Dimittis? Let your servant depart in peace. In other words, Lord, I'm your servant. You are my master. My job was to wait here until I have seen your anointed one, the consolation of Israel. I've just seen him. I've just seen him. All right, I'm finished. 
Get me out of here, Lord. Now dismiss your servant. How did he know? How did he know who this baby was? Was it a total coincidence that he just felt that he should go into the courts of the temple at that particular time and just happened to bump in to this couple? Was it just a, a hunch that he sees this baby and he says, ha, I know who that is. No, here is a man who is alert to and alive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind. Because what we're beginning to see now is the stirring of the Spirit of God beginning to work again among his people. So the Holy Spirit is upon him. The Holy Spirit reveals something to him. The Holy Spirit moves him into an encounter. Let me give you another example of this that I love. You remember Philip, the evangelist? Well, actually, he was supposed to be a deacon, but he, he did his deaking pretty quickly, and then he, he, he'd rather preach. So he went out and did some evangelizing as well. He was busy evangelizing and enjoying something akin to a revival where he was. And the Spirit of God says to him, Spirit of God says to him, I want you to head south. <laughs> he said, just head south? Yes. Well, where am I going? Just head south. And incredibly, he goes. Incredibly, he goes. And it just so happens that as he's heading south, this road south intersects with a road going east and west. And it just so happens that he gets to the intersection of these roads, a very, very important-looking gentleman in a very, very fine limousine comes driving past, and it just so happens that this man is sitting in his limousine reading a book, and it just so happens that Philip is tired and he thumbs a lift. And Philip becomes the patron saint of all hitchhikers. And <laughs> it just so happens that this very important gentleman, who is an Ethiopian, this Ethiopian gives him a lift. And it just so happens that Philip gets into conversation with him about the book that he's bought in Jerusalem. And he says to him, I think it's rather an impertinent question when he's asked for a lift. Do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I unless somebody interprets it? And Philip says, I happen to know how to interpret it. Do you know what this Ethiopian was reading? He was reading the prophecy of Isaiah. And the question he asks is, who is Isaiah talking about, himself or somebody else? And Philip is able to tell him. Now, how many coincidences were there there? It's amazing. None. None. The Holy Spirit, when we live in harmony with him, is perfectly capable of moving things around, putting thoughts into our mind, reorganizing circumstances, bringing us to be in the right place at the right time in touch with the right person, able to say the right thing at the right moment. It's his work. It's his work. The Holy Spirit is working 
again. Well, there's an illustration that has nothing to do, of course, with the Holy Spirit and Jesus, but you get the picture here. Simeon, the Spirit of God is upon him. The Spirit of God reveals something to him. The Spirit of God moves him in a certain direction. All right, let's move on. Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Now we come to Jesus after the silent years in Nazareth, growing up. Remember, he now appears on the scene. John the Baptist is busy engaging in his ministry. John the Baptist is preaching. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, or I baptize you with water leading to repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right. Now remember the low state of affairs in Israel we've talked about. Remember that John is the good old-fashioned prophet, and he suddenly appears on the scene. And he is a man on whom the Spirit of God rests. So now it seems that there is a kind of resurrection of what's been missing for all those centuries. Suddenly an old-time prophet on whom the Spirit of God clearly rests is speaking up on what he is saying that people are absolutely fascinated to hear. And some people are absolutely driven crazy by him and the others are going wild with excitement about it. He's just a typical prophet. He's driving a wedge right through the whole society. And there is some who are either 100% for him or 100% against him. That's what tends to happen with prophets. And what he says is this. I am calling this nation to repentance. I'm calling this nation to repentance. And I am calling this nation to repentance, and I'm calling it to repentance in such a way that they will publicly acknowledge their need of repentance. And not only that, I am calling this nation to repentance that they will publicly testify to and which they will then demonstrate practically in changed behavior. And he said, the reason I'm calling this nation to this is, and here are the electrifying words, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. And the kingdom of God is near because there is one coming after me who is far greater than I am. I'm not fit to clean his shoes. And he is the one you must listen to. And when he comes, he says, I'll tell you what he is going to do. He is going to baptize you with Holy Spirit on fire. Not water, like me. 
I am going to plunge you into this water, and this will be a symbolic statement of the fact that you are coming to repentance and you're freely admitting it in public. That's not what he's going to do. He is going to immerse you in the Spirit of God. And in immersing you in the Spirit of God, he will immerse you in fire as well. Now, this is a fascinating statement. When he says that the one who is coming after me will baptize you in the Spirit and fire, the, the question is, is there two different things? Or is spirit and fire two ways of saying the same thing? Well, the theologians get into the Greek at this point, and they say from a Greek point of view, it looks as if the two words are saying the same thing. But on the other hand, there is reason to believe, good reason to believe, that they're two different things. That the baptism in spirit is a promise that the one who is coming, who will bring in the kingdom, will bring in untold blessing in the Spirit. But he will also bring in fire, and fire means purging, cleansing, and judgment. Burning, cleansing, and judgment. Now, you won't find people agreeing on this, but one thing we do agree on is that the Scripture teaches quite definitely that the Lord Jesus comes and has come as Savior. That his initial concern was not to bring judgment. He said, I, didn't, I haven't come to judge. I have come to save. But Scripture also teaches us that ultimately and finally the one who came as Savior is the one before whom we will stand as judge. Now, as far as John Baptist was concerned, he was a typical prophet, and he was looking at what was wrong with his culture, and he was challenging it and saying, unless you repent, you're going to experience judgment. And he was expecting it right now. That was what he was seeing. That was what he was expecting. But in actual fact, that is not what happened when Jesus came. Jesus did not come and immediately start bringing judgment. He brought blessing. He brought salvation. There is a long gap between the blessing, the day of blessing, the accepted day of blessing, and the ultimate judgment day. That may be one reason why John the Baptist later on sends some of his disciples and says, would you go to Jesus and ask him if he's the one we are to expect or should we expect another? Have you ever wondered about that? You ever wondered about that? John the Baptist of all people, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who's announced that this is the man, the one who sees himself as the fulfillment of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1. Check it out sometime. That's how you pronounce it, Malachi. Some of my friends think he was the last um, Italian prophet, Malachi. <laughs> Malachi, 
chapter 4, verse 1. John the Baptist saw himself, and that is all about the coming one, and it's all about judgment. I wonder, I wonder, if John the Baptist was having doubts about Jesus, because as far as he was concerned, he couldn't understand why Jesus wasn't laying about him with that fire, why the judgment hadn't come. He's having doubts about this. There's another reason. John the Baptist knew full well that when the servant of the Lord came, among other things, he would release the prisoners. And where was John the Baptist when he sent for those disciples? He was in prison. <laughs> He's saying, hey, this Jesus, I'm not sure about him. Jesus, I'm not sure. It's amazing how even the stalwarts at times can be overwhelmed with doubt. But at this particular moment, John is in his heyday. And the announcement is very, very straightforward. Jesus will baptize with spirit and with fire. The promises that no doubt John the Baptist has in mind are contained all over the place in the Old Testament. Let me just remind you of Ezekiel 36. Make a note of it and you can check it out later on. Ezekiel 36 and Joel chapter 2, verse 28. All right, we move on now to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? <laughs> that reminds me of um, the first baptism by immersion, which is the way we baptize here at Elmbrook, first baptism by immersion that, that I did when I came as pastor to Elmbrook was in the old building that we had on Calhoun Road. And it was sort of a hole in the wall, and there were drapes. And at a given moment, somebody would drop, pull back the drapes. You say, well, I was, standing, I was standing there, and I'd never done one of these baptisms before, so I was just standing there, and I got, I got my shirt on, and well, obviously I got my shirt on, I got some other things on as well, but, we, but I'd rolled up my sleeves, you see. And when the drapes went back, Jill told me afterwards, she said, you look like the plumber caught by surprise. <laughs> well, that, that was nothing compared to what happened because the first man to come in must have been six feet eight tall. Now, I'm, I'm not small, I'm just over six feet, but he was way towering over me. And somebody who was sort of prompting me how to do this thing, he said, give him a verse. Give him a verse of scripture. <laughs> so I said, I have a verse of scripture for you. I said, the only verse I can think of at this moment is, and I quoted this verse here, I need to be baptized by you. <laughs> And do you come to me? <laughs> oh dear, not a very good start. Anyway, those were the good old days at Elmbrook before we got respectable. <laughs> so 
John objects. I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. This is an expression somewhat ambiguous, various understandings of it. I think minimally what it's saying is, look, come on, you and I, John, we need to do this thing. We need to get on the same page. It's the right thing to do. Minimally, that's what he's saying. It's the right thing to do. And in so doing, Jesus, in a remarkable way, identifies with people. He doesn't need to be baptized for, to, to demonstrate that he is repenting. He is being tested in all points, such as we are, but is without sin. He has lived a magnificent life as a child and a young adult and a young man, 30 years of age now, in Nazareth, without sin. He, it, it's nothing to repent about. So he's not being baptized to repent, but he is identifying with the people. He's identifying with the people, and he is humbling himself before the people. And that's the right thing for him to do because Jesus knows that he is the servant of the Lord. We're going to see that in just a moment. So it's the right thing to do. And then Jesus consented. Verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. This is a critical moment now in the life of Jesus. He is embarking now on his public ministry. People were not allowed in Israel. Men were not allowed to enter into priestly ministry before 30 years of age. They were regarded as too young, too immature to engage in it before 30 years of age. Jesus does not embark on his ministry till he's 30 years of age. But now he's been baptized. He's identified himself humbly with the people. He is saying, in effect, I am the Lord's servant. I am doing what he wants me to do. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Now, the thing that we're not sure about was this. Did Jesus, and perhaps other people as well, see the Holy Spirit like a dove? Or did they see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove? Descending. It doesn't really matter, but the Greek would allow for either. It could be that they see the Holy Spirit like a dove, or they see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove descend. What we do know, however, is this. This is the moment at which God publicly affirms and empowers and calls and sets apart his son. We know this from what the voice from heaven then says. A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now notice that statement is very, very significant indeed. 
Turn, if you will, to Psalm 2, verse 7. Actually, I'm, I'm going to read the whole psalm. This is one of my favorite psalms. It is so up to date. When I listen to the news, I'm often just reeling through the back of my mind Psalm 2. Look at the first question. Why do the nations rage? (laughs) Have you noticed? Why do the people plot in vain? Answer, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together. And what do they have in common? Against the Lord. And what else? And against his anointed one. What do they say? Let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. That's the picture on earth right now. Listen to the news in the morning. All right? Then make sure you keep things in perspective. The one enthroned in heaven thinks that if this wasn't so tragic, it would be very funny indeed. He laughs. Why does he laugh? The thought of these people in positions of authority, strutting around, thinking that they can actually do better than the Lord and his anointed, is so incredibly ludicrous, heaven laughs at the thought. He scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger. And one day he'll terrify them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, and don't you forget it. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, now the king speaks, he said to me, you are my son. All right? Now what did the voice from heaven say at the baptism of Jesus? This is my son. What does Psalm 2 say? The king who's been set on the hill who will eventually bring all people into subjection with himself, he said, the father said to me, you are my son. Now that is very, very important because at the moment of the, if you like, the heavenly endorsing of Jesus. There is a statement that he is the chosen son of God. He is the king of kings. He is the one who ultimately will reign. Bear that in mind. Now turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 42, please. Isaiah chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. 
What does the Lord say here? He said, this is my servant, the one in whom I delight, I have put my spirit on him. What does the voice from heaven say at the baptism of Jesus? This is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. And this is a statement that affirms by the coming of the Spirit on Jesus of Nazareth. It affirms two things. This is the Son of God. And this is the servant of Jehovah. And as we put those two pieces together, we have keys to understanding so much of what the Old Testament is telling us. And this is what happens at the baptism of Jesus. A voice from heaven explains, in effect, this is my son and this is my servant. And so Jesus, in his baptism, as the Spirit of God comes upon him, is empowered and anointed. Always remember, anointing speaks of a public statement concerning being installed in office and is also a symbol of the empowering for that office. Jesus is publicly ordained, if you like, a son of God who will rule and reign, and he is the suffering servant. The Jewish people still stumble on that one. They still stumble on the idea that the one who ultimately will reign is the one who first will suffer. But that is the key as far as our understanding of the gospel is concerned.